Welcome everyone to episode 38 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me a friend who today is going by an avatar. I'm joined by Von Mises. Hey, Brandon. Great to be here. Big fan of yours. Love, love the poker playing. I read your book on behavioral finance, so uh, definitely a big fan of yours. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is this is part of a uh, learning journey I'm engaging on in crypto and NFTs. Um, it's it's helped by the fact that anytime I do a podcast on NFTs, I get about 10x engagement. I don't know if you <laughs> guys, but on, on our on our intro tweet, uh, we got some some serious engagement. Um, reflecting in part the subject matter and reflecting also, I think your influence in the space. I was describing before we started that uh, that multiple people <clears throat> mentioned your Twitter account as a as a much a must follow in the in the crypto and NFT space. So um, I want to go way back with you. I want to start. Um, I want to start say in the late two thousands because obviously your your Twitter handle. Uh, we have Austrian economics in there. Yes. Um, we have your deep experience in the traditional financial system. Take us back to the financial crisis years before crypto, before NFTs. Tell us, tell us what things were like then. Uh, you know, I, I did have a extensive career in finance and, you know, lived through the financial crisis and, you know, was, um, involved with institutional type accounts and, and seeing what took place. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that really highlighted the flaws in the financial system for me was the fact that counterparty risk and systemic risk and centralization and too big to fail all became pretty, pretty key terms that came out of the financial crisis. And I, I do think that um, dovetails nicely with, with crypto because the, um, Bitcoin white paper came out in late 2008 as the financial crisis was, you know, in full steam. And Satoshi does speak about returning the power back to the people in terms of decentralization um, and avoiding a lot of the pitfalls that we have with our current financial system that still exists. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say to you that if you look at the financial crisis, the, the one thing that you really can't argue with is the fact that centralization uh, and too big to fail uh, are, are really not something we want to have. And uh, I'm not exactly sure if this is where you want this, this, this to go. Uh, but, you know, we have a financial system that was built 100 years ago, basically uh, out of necessity. It, it was impossible to exchange items of high value without a trusted intermediary. And that's why we have centralized exchanges and why we have banks and why we have these all these large centralized entities that were trusted and enabled people to be involved in exchange of high value assets without having to um, worry about getting ripped off. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I, I think that if you if you look at um, you know the ethos of crypto and decentralization, especially smart contracts in Ethereum, it gives you the ability to transact assets without putting trust in a centralized entity. And we, you don't need to have counterparty risk. And I, I think that that's one of the biggest things that, that I learned from my time in finance and now my journey in crypto that, you know, 
the way we've been doing it is probably not how we're going to be doing it in 100 years from now. I don't know if it's going to take 50 years or 20 years or 10 years for it to change, but in 100 years from now, I don't think we're going to be dealing with, I, I would highly doubt that we would be dealing with centralized uh, exchanges and centralized entities. And I think that crypto is really leading the, the charge there. You know, we have to we have to prove that the system works. And I, I think that's that's what, what's, what's being fleshed out right now. In the financial crisis years, it became evident that our financial system was much more politicized than we had realized. And <laughs> political power had a lot more to do with financial outcomes than, than we would have hoped. Uh, how do you see crypto and NFTs taking politics out of the financial system? Good question. Uh, you know, I think that the, the fact that um, you can be anyone you want in a virtual world. I mean, who I was before on Mesa's, um, you know, it really doesn't matter. I could be, you know, any color, any religion, any race, um, any sex. It, 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 it doesn't matter. I, I think that the um, taking back of financial power from the political system, I think, is, is a good thing. I, I think that anybody can be whoever they want in this space. And, you know, I, I support getting more women involved. I support getting more um, people of color involved. I support all the things that you know you'd want to see happen, but I, I do think that it's relatively speaking a level playing field in the space. Anybody can be whoever they want, and there's been a lot of millionaires minted in the last decade in the space. So I, I think that kind of proves that you you can you can you can accomplish what you want without fear of prejudice. I I, I guess would be the right term. Now. Um, again, going back to the earlier years, a decade plus ago, as someone who's influenced by Austrian economics, um, as uh, someone concerned with centralized power, we can assume someone who um, has their doubts about the Federal Reserve and the the uh, intersection between the Federal Reserve and government spending. Um, one might have expected at your age that you would have been into uh, gold, silver, things like this. And if memory serves, you were. Um, how did you save yourself and uh, get off of that gold train and onto the uh, much more effective? crypto train? Uh, yeah, you know, I, to be honest with you, I, I'm actually kind of surprised by how many people out there that are big gold proponents are actually, you know, anti-crypto, like someone like Peter Schiff, who's someone I actually respect and like, you know, he's been bearish on Bitcoin since, you know, Bitcoin was $300. And he still thinks he's going to be right. I send messages all the time to his Twitter, like, you know, what has to happen for you to be wrong? Like, it, it goes from 300 to 60,000 and you're, you, you still think you're gonna be right on this trade? Um, I don't know, I, I think that, um, I think Ludwig von Mises, my namesake, would, would really would have embraced crypto. I think that it has a lot of the characteristics that he would identify as, uh, as money. And I, I, I think that it's a natural extension. I, I, I don't understand how someone can love gold and not love 
crypto and Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything that comes along with it. It's it's an anti-dollar trade in a lot of ways. And I, I think that they go hand in hand. So for me, as someone who's always wanted to have a diversified portfolio, yeah, I mean, I, I do hold gold, but I think that um, you know, cryptocurrencies and and Bitcoin and Ethereum and many of the other ones are are a very reasonable hedge in a in an anti-dollar portfolio. So through diversification, I got involved in Bitcoin and from there it's all just snowballed. So no, I mean, not to say no, but limited rebalancing, you got into crypto and as it became an increasing proportion of your portfolio, you just allowed that to, to happen. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, I, I definitely have sold, uh, you know, quite a bit over the years. I mean, I, I made an initial investment in Bitcoin in 2011. It was a $5,000 investment, everything that I have in crypto, NFTs, DeFi, everything has all flowed from that one single investment. That was a good investment. Yeah, it was pretty good investment. Um, okay, so I think it's obvious now that people who were into gold, they, they missed a lot of the advantages of crypto, a lot of the advantages that crypto had over gold, for instance, Bitcoin, let's say caps out at 21 million, whereas gold historically has expanded in supply 2% per year, sort of forever. Gold is not easily divisible, um, not easily transportable, um, costly to store. And uh, Bitcoin is very much frictionless by comparison. I think many people who were inclined towards gold just sort of missed these things. Um, but one criticism that gold people have that I think has some merit is that crypto is so much against the government interest, so much against the interest of all governments since all governments really like to spend heavily and print money to finance the spending. Um, yes. Do you see a day where governments get more heavy handed in trying to sort of stomp out crypto? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think that, I think there's a, there's somewhat of a technology crypto battle that's going to take place in the not too distant future. I mean, if you look at what something like someone like China is doing, which is embracing a digital yuan or, uh, and, um, you know, from a totalitarian standpoint, having all your, all your people's transactions on a blockchain is, is quite good. You, you get to see everything that happens uh, as long as you can tie those accounts to individuals and in a totalitarian government, I don't think that would be hard to do. Um, but I ultimately think that China's ambition is to then export their, um, their digital, their blockchain. And, and I guess initially it would be other potentially totalitarian governments or governments that are within their sphere of influence and say, look, you use our currency, you, you know, you'll, you'll have better control of your people. Um, and then potentially even challenge the dollar in terms of um, a digital reserve currency. Like you could easily see Iran getting on that system where, you know, China is getting oil from them and paying them digitally and now they're off the dollar system. And 
you know, I think that could be a very, very powerful thing. And I think that the U.S. were to really, really crack down on Bitcoin, you know, you're, you're running the risk of, of um, really handicapping yourself in that space. And I'm not saying that the U.S. is ever going to really embrace Bitcoin, but I, I think that there's too much happening in the space for them to really stomp it out and um, potentially uh make it so you can't own it or can't hold it. I, I think that they've got bigger issues to worry about than than chasing a digital currency. But uh, I don't know. I mean, you could be right on that also. So you envision that the U.S. would be essentially faced with a bad choice. Uh, they could either let crypto flourish and... Mm-hmm impede their ability to do inflation financing, essentially, money printing. Um, or they could try to try to crush crypto and lose out to a China-backed digital currency or other government-backed yes. digital currencies. Yes. I think, I, think a, I think a digital yuan is one of the best weapons that China could potentially have financially. If you really want to take on the US or really try to be the reserve currency, you probably can't do it with the dollar system because it's so entrenched. So just completely look at the future, see where it's going and say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to create a digital reserve currency and this is going to be it. And I I mean, I think that's, to me, that's a real concern. And there was some speculation that China would try to launch their digital currency during the Winter Olympics. Is that... Hmm, I, I, I mean, I mean, I, I from what I understand, I, I do think that there are some um, areas that are already using using it, but I, I, I can't say to you that I'm an expert on on you know I, I try to focus more on public blockchains versus you know closed private ones, but you know I, I do think that that's a real threat potentially. So, at what point in your history did you sort of convert from cryptocurrencies? to NFTs, or I don't know if that's the reasonable way to put it. Uh, at, at what point did you start to spend much more time on NFTs? So I had played Magic the Gathering in my past and I, in my Reddit feed or some feed, I started getting served up these ads for Gods Unchained and it was a um, collectible card game um, you know, similar to Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering. And I said, all right, let me take a look at it. And uh, so I guess that was probably like 2000, early 2019, I want to say. 2000, maybe late 2018, early 2019. And I got involved with their Genesis sale. started playing the game, um, you know, became competitive at it, reaching the highest ranks of it, and, you know, just really got into it a little bit. And then you know, when I really started thinking about what was happening here, you had these cards that you could actually trade on a blockchain. And it, so it kind of combined collecting and trading and, um, you know, a lot of things all, all together, collecting, trading, and crypto all into one. So for me, that was really kind of interesting. So after- getting me really, You're getting me really upset right now because I'm realizing that you told me about this. I did. Such an idiot. It's a continuing theme of this podcast. Well, I mean, right, go on, go on. Idea, but I mean, so um, as I started realizing what I was looking at, I'm like, wow, this is really 
kind of cool. And I said, so then naturally, uh, as someone who's collected things, I said to myself, well, let me look into this technology a little bit more. Let me try to understand it. And, um, you know, although I had a lot of experience in blockchain, it wasn't like I, I, I didn't really understand everything, everything that was happening. Um, so just started doing more research. And then uh, I came across CryptoPunks. Um, they're one of the first NFTs, the first NFT really to get any any real traction. And when I got to CryptoPunks, I knew what I was looking at pretty much immediately. I was like, this is something, you know, different, special, interesting. Again, like at the time, uh, CryptoPunk was about a hundred bucks. Um, you know, good ones could be had, I mean, great ones could be had for a thousand. And, um, you know, in early 2020, I, I, I bought like 60 CryptoPunks, including a lot of really good ones. Um, and I've kept a lot of them. I, at, at the peak, I had probably 65 CryptoPunks. I still have about 27 left. I gave CryptoPunks to friends of mine that, you know, one, one sold is for $50,000. Another one still has it. it's worth 400 grand, you know, stuff, crazy stuff like that. Um, and then once I got to CryptoPunks, I, then I really embraced the whole NFT culture and what I was looking at. And, you know, at the time, the CryptoPunk Discord was like a really good place to be. There was a lot of really smart people that had been there from the beginning. So, you know, CryptoPunks, when they came out in 2017, they were, they were given away for free. The, the developers of CryptoPunks basically were like, well, the, in some of the interviews I've seen with them, they, they literally didn't know if anybody was going to even care about these things. So they're like, okay, well, let's see if we can just give them away. And within a couple of days, they'd all been claimed. And, you know, uh, people started trading them right away. And um, you know, here we are. Here we are. Uh, I, I got involved in Autoglyphs. I got involved in Axies. A lot of these early blockchain assets, I was like, okay, if you believe in CryptoPunks, you, you should really take a look at everything that's been around, especially from the beginning, because as this technology advances, as people get more into this, everything's going to go up and everything's going to go up a lot. And, you know, um, it was, it was pretty easy to, to, to pick the right things. And because you just look at the major projects and there were a lot of smart people in the CryptoPunks discord, and they talked a lot about, you know, what made something special and the, the, the nerdiness of it all. And um, that's where I met Snowfro who created art blocks you know, he tells me, oh, I'm going to go start this art blocks platform. You know, it's generative art. It's really kind of cool. You should check it out. I was there on day one and did tons and tons of art block stuff. And that all went crazy. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been quite a trip. So basically by uh, mid-2020, most of your crypto is effectively in the form of NFTs. You've sort of converted your your coins into NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't convert a lot of my Bitcoin, but I started converting a lot of my Ethereum. And I was kind of like, I, I definitely remember saying to myself, like, all right, you're swapping all of your Ethereum for these NFTs. Like if Ethereum really blasts off and these things don't move, you're going to really feel like a dumbass. And um but it turned out that, um, you know, they ended up basically being levered plays on Ethereum. So 
you know, if you look at CryptoPunks from, let's say, June of 2020 to June of 2021, they more than 1,000 axed in price. And it was basically like Ethereum 20 axed and, or yeah, 20xed, and then the CryptoPunks 50xed in Ethereum. So that's how you get this these crazy numbers. That is a good year. That is a good year indeed. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. So going forward, what, what are your uh, primary interests within the NFT space? Uh, you know, I mean, now I think the focus, well, I mean, like just elaborating on, on these early assets, like uh, I, I feel like as we continue to merge the, the digital world with everyday life and the coming metaverse, which, you know, is something that we've been talking about in, you know, the NFT space for a while, which is just starting to really get talked about more outside of that space. You know, with obviously Facebook changing the name to Meta, the awareness of Metaverse is, is you know, becoming more, um, people are becoming more aware of it. For me, I'm trying to focus on, you know, what do I, what assets do I want to own that are going to benefit in this future metaverse and you know so like with crypto punks and board ape yacht club and these pfp projects people use them on their twitter profile or they use them on their instagram feed and uh you know it's gives some cachet and a digital flex i i think that that's going to continue to take place i think that you know down the line people are going to have you know maybe a link to their metaverse uh, world where they're going to show off their digital art um, or show off their um, avatars or show off their just their digital collection. So I'm trying to think about assets that people are going to want to own, you know, in that type of world. So, you know, I, I do always think that something like CryptoPunks, even though they're slightly, they've been slightly out of favor lately, they've come off their off their highest valuations. Um, I, I think people are going to always want to own CryptoPunks and always going to want to hold CryptoPunks. But, but when you start talking about metaverse-ready assets, I think that's where there's some interesting things. So like, um, I don't know, I'm hesitant to throw out, you know, specific projects because I don't want to like, you know, I, I, I don't really know what the, I don't really know what the future holds, but, you know, like a project like, um, like uh, CryptoCubes, which is a small project um, that, ha that, when these came out, uh, probably in early, early 2020, maybe late 2019, they included um, a file that enabled you to unlock uh, an augmented reality file as well as uh, like a metaverse file. And I think that, you know, something that was that far ahead of um, what the meta, like really building in something in, so far in the future that really people really weren't aware of, you, you could unlock these assets and you could display them like in Decentraland or some of the other smaller metaverses. But I think now that we're really heading into this world and there's going to be more investment in the space, that assets like that will, will really be interesting. I, I don't own any of the Joy products, but um, you know he, that artist has done some pretty crazy stuff in AR and VR. And I think 
they they could be very valuable as well, although they all are already pretty 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 expensive. So you know, metaverse, anything that really is going to be able to be readily displayed and used in the metaverse setting, I think is important. Like, um, and, and I also think the metaverse is going to need a lot of art. So great art, I think, you know, goes hand in hand with what people are going to want. If you're going to, if, if people are going to have um, a digital uh, house or a meeting place or a gallery, like those are th things I think a lot of people will have in the future. Like, people scroll through each other's Instagram feeds. Well, I think people will want to hang out in other and check out other people's, you know, metaverse worlds. Uh, so I, I think that, the, that that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at um, and, and thinking about. So if we were to break it into uh, three categories in NFTs, art, gaming, and content, um, starting with art, okay, Suppose that my daughter, this is actually more than a hypothetical because somehow, she, well, <laughs> somehow, she, somehow my daughter is aware of the metaverse and she's, she's somehow aware of something that I was only aware of starting this morning, which is that you could have the digital gallery and browse around mm -hmm. the digital gallery because i was browsing yeah. around your digital gallery okay. um, how does one create their own digital gallery which and is it fair to say that a digital gallery that would be a, a metaverse light right like someone yes talking, okay um yes. how does how does my daughter create her own digital art gallery so, I mean, I have two, two different galleries and one is kind of like the way people traditionally thought that a metaverse was gonna be like, which would be something like Decentraland. So if you were to go to Decentraland or Somnium Space or Crypto Voxels and you buy land and the land is not cheap, it can definitely be expensive. And then you could hire someone like um, someone who's an architect for lack of a better word or gra a graphic architect and they could build you a space and then you could populate it with whatever assets you wanted. That's a pretty expensive way to do it. That's the way it's been done. Um, and I have a gallery linked on my Twitter feed that would, that in my Twitter, that that's my Decentraland gallery. It has a lot of punks and X copy art and other things to be seen. But more recently, um, there's been a, there's a company called OnCyber and I think on cyber is really going to make a big splash. Um, their model is very different. So what they what on cyber does, well, first of all, if you go to on cyber, you can you can get a free gallery, and you link your wallet, and then it calls up. Once you link your wallet, and that's very safe. There's no there's no risk in linking your wallet to a site like on cyber. Um, it's no different than linking your wallet to on to OpenSea. Um, so once you link your wallet, you'd be able to call up all your NFTs. Um, it would show display, it would show you on the left-hand panel. And then there's little places that you'd click on to display your art. And you can make an on-cyber gallery very easily and very quickly. And it's really a pretty amazing way to show off your artwork. Uh, and I, I had been looking for something because it's expensive and a little bit cumbersome to do something in Decentraland if you're not an expert programmer. But on cyber has basically kind of flipped the model 
where instead of owning expensive land and building what you want, you, you can use their free galleries or they also have NFTs that you can buy that are like their higher level galleries. And it basically gives you a building space that you can then populate with your NFTs. And it's very simple to use. It's very intuitive. It's pretty amazing, to be honest with you. And I've had a lot of conversations um, with the person who's developing on cyber uh, because I'm a huge fan and obviously someone who's pretty active in the space. So when I started putting out on cyber galleries, he was definitely interested in talking to me as well. I mean, I think these guys have a chance to really change the model in terms of what people's expectations are for the metaverse and potentially be a small part that eventually grows into a bigger part of the metaverse. So right now, and you saw if you went to my art blocks gallery that, you know, you can walk around this gallery and you can see the art. And if it's, if it's animated, it'll animate when you get close to it and you can do all those things. But the next iteration is going to be like almost like a multiplayer where you and I could be there at the same time and we could see each other as avatars and potentially interact with each other. And that's coming. And then the next stage would be to link multiple galleries together where there is a portal or a doorway or something. And maybe you could even see the other gallery through the portal and people link up their galleries together and create a more uh, a shared experience where people can walk seamlessly from gallery to gallery. And that's almost like, to me, that almost is what I envision the metaverse being where you have these locations that are linked together and you can interact and walk among them. And it's almost like, you know, let's say myself and Vincent Van Doe link our galleries together. Well, now someone could come there to see either one and, and go back and forth and see a lot of really amazing art in one space. And, and then you take it to the next stage where a bunch of different groups create little, little, I don't know, uh, collectives. And then those collectives all get linked. It's almost like a neighborhood. Like you almost becomes like different neighborhoods all linking together. And you, you can see how this simple NFT by itself is really cool. But when you think about linking them with multiple other galleries, you start creating a more of an experience. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure. Like I, I was, I was thinking about buying more Decentraland and building another gallery, but the cost is pretty expensive. Can you, can saw, you ballpark it? Well, like, you know, okay, so my gallery in Decentraland, it's eight parcels that are together. Um, it would probably cost you over $100,000 to buy eight parcels together right now. That's pretty expensive where you could create that experience, you could create a comparable experience in an on cyber gallery for, you know, uh, half an ETH potentially. Okay. So, and but go ahead. if my daughter, for instance, were uh, trying to assemble a gallery, mm -hmm. um, it's expensive to have the Ethereum chain assets. Does it matter if they're Ethereum chain or one of the other chains like Polygon mm -hmm. or something like that? Uh, I, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't really do a lot of stuff off of um, Ethereum. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Polygon, asset, Polygon chain assets would work on an OnCyber gallery. The, the thing is what you can do is you can go, she could go to the OnCyber site 
and link a wallet and then it'll it'll show you I, i'm not sure I, I i'm not sure if if polygon assets are supported right now i don't i don't know so you you tend to stick to ethereum chain assets because they're higher quality overall i just yeah i mean i i i don't there's a lot of stuff on on side chains and polygon that i think are good it's just I'm kind of focused on the high end, higher end. And if you're focused on the higher end, like you don't need, people don't really, I mean, I don't, on a crypto punk or a piece of art blocks, most people aren't worried about what the gas fee is. Yeah. Now, okay. Facebook changed their name to meta, mm-hmm. orienting themselves towards the metaverse. But um, I, I went through uh, eight months of your tweets in preparation. Among the tweets that you reference is, by uh, at punk6529, who seems yes. to be a popular follow as well. He's a good one. And he, he has uh, a chain you interact with that has, I don't know, 100,000 engagements or so. And he's talking about uh, building a decentralized future yes. versus today's centralized wor- world. And he points the finger when he's talking about the problems of centralized land at not only governments, but also big tech. Yes. Um, so what, what, what do people in the, in the NFT uh, crypto space think about Facebook's efforts to uh, orient themselves towards the metaverse? I mean, it's very mixed as you can imagine. Um, you know, someone like 6529 who is, Super, super, super smart guy. Big, big fan of his. I sold him one of his first NFTs, by the way. Um, uh, I, I, I think that ideally you don't want Facebook doing it. You don't want a, cent- a large corporate entity who's going to build walls potentially around it and try to steer things towards their products. I mean, obviously, Facebook is not going to spend billions of dollars if they don't see a return on their investment, in most likely. So although I, I don't think it's ideal, I, I guess I look at it like someone needs to make a big investment. And I don't think Facebook can wall it off to the extent that um, you know you exclude a lot of the uh, aspects that people who are digitally native fans would, 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 would want. I, I think that... It's not ideal, but if someone's going to spend a couple billion dollars to build a metaverse and bring this digital world, I, I think that you want that. And I think that ultimately, if it's not as free as we would like it to be, well, that will leave opportunity for competitors. But I think opening that door and getting the vision out there and letting people understand what the implications of this is, I, I think is pretty important. And I don't know, I mean... On, on some level, the metaverse may be the ultimate purpose of, of the internet to create an experience that you just, you, you couldn't get anywhere. You, you give people the ability to be places and do things and interact in a way that you just can't do right now. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Again, I would absolutely positively prefer that the actual metaverse is decentralized and not controlled by a corporate entity. But again, someone's got to make this investment of billions of dollars to at least show the way. And if Facebook's willing to do that, I'm cautiously supportive. 
I'm realizing something quite crazy about this 6529 account. They they joined in May 2021. Obviously, they had been on Twitter before, but they decided to go anonymous and just yes. go by the punk in May of yes. 2021. And they have 191,000 Twitter followers. Yes. That's quite remarkable. He's really good. He's he's ex- he's exceptional. Um, I, I have friends with him personally. Uh, again, I, I sold him his really first high value NFT. Uh, I remember he bought a perfect spectrum squiggle from me um, for 90 ETH. At the time, it was like $250,000. $250, and um, I remember saying to him, welcome to the deep end of the pool. And he just ran with it. He ran with it. And, you know, he's, he's spent quite a, he's bought some very impressive pieces. Definitely spent a lot of money in the space. True thought leader. Very, very smart. You know, I can't say enough good things about 6529. And do you, I, I'm sure, I'm sure he was influential on Twitter before. I have no idea who this person is, obviously. Um, I'm sure he was influential on Twitter before he started going by 6529. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have insight as to why he decided to just go by his punk for the forever future? Is it some part security? Is it, it what, what might be the reasons? Yeah, it was funny. Like one, one of the comments I did, I did chuckle quite a bit when one of the comments to your initial post was like, you know, you talked about how I was coming on the show and I was not going to reveal my name. And then someone said, Oh, what are you embarrassed or something like that? It's like, no, none of us are. Trust me. I, I'm not embarrassed in the least. I'm quite happy with with how things are. I, but I think that having a degree of anonymity is a is a good thing. You know, we're talking about um, you know high value assets, and you know it's very you know there. Although ninety nine point nine percent of people out there you know don't intend to do you any harm, you do have to be mindful that there are people out there that have you know, less than good intentions. And if you can put a little bit of a barrier between that, um, you know, look, if, I'm sure if someone really wants to figure out and find who I am, I'm sure they can probably do that. But, you know, uh, I, I take security very important, very seriously. Um, I, I think everyone should make sure that they're always practicing, you know, safe cryptoing. And I think that having a, a degree of anonymity is, is, is very important. And I think that's why 6529 is doing it. I would refer everyone to your Twitter feed if they're interested in security details. You uh, you have a thread on that. Um, okay, a hot topic now is gaming NFTs, mm-hmm. particularly these full-on gaming worlds where you can buy real estate or assets in the gaming world. Okay. Um, are you... Are you in this space? I didn't notice many tweets about it. It's more um, on the art side. But are you are you intrigued by this space? Well, I mean, look, I Gods Unchained is a game, uh, and I do enjoy playing the game. I do maintain, uh, you know, since I got involved in the game, I do maintain a high rank in the game and do play it regularly. And I think that um, it's interesting because. Um, Gods Unchained recently, and, and by the way, so when I say Gods Unchained, it's also like something similar, like they're kind of following the Axies model. So 
you know, Axie is, I would call by far the most successful blockchain-based game. And part of what Axies has done a really good job at is be able to create this feedback loop where, um, you know, you you really do. They've really done a great job at creating a, a, a an economy where you have people that are, you know, not in not in the United States, but there are people that are playing this game for a living in countries where, like, you can actually make more money playing Axies than you can make earning a wage in a lot of countries. And these people play the game. They earn these tokens. They they are able to, you know, feed their families through through gaming. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, an interesting aspect to it. And I think God's Unchained is trying to create that same type of feedback loop where, if you play the game, you'll earn their God's token, and that God's token has value. And if the if the population of the game keeps growing. The governance token has more value, and you know I, I watched that Axis token go from a dollar when it came to you know 175, I think at the highs, and you know it's all they keep growing their player base. Players are earning these governance tokens that gets more people involved, and the governance tokens go up, and then all the assets in game go up, and it's it's interesting to be able to create that. So, I yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a sector that I watch. I have some developers that have contacted me asking me to get involved in, in some of their games. And I, I always look at them. I don't, I don't do any pay for play. I don't tweet stuff out because someone's, I, I just don't, I don't need to do that, but I, I always look at the games and try to understand what's going on and whether I think that they're viable. I, I play God's Unchained because I just like the game and I think it's fun. Uh, and I like the competitive aspect of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that gaming, you know, like, if you play Hearthstone, you spend a lot of money and you own these cards, but you can't do anything with them. You can't sell them. You can't trade them. You can't anything. So I think that whether gaming companies want to acknowledge it or not, there are going to be people that are going to come to market with games that are going to allow players to own their assets. And owning those assets is definitely going to be preferred over not owning those game assets or paying money and not having anything to show for it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, now, you mentioned that crypto engineers will contact you and maybe if they've developed a game, they want you to take a look and possibly promote their game. Um, I would imagine that for someone like you, it would be beneficial to almost have consulting engineers, technical people that you could evaluate projects with. Is that is that something that's valuable to you? Do you have like highly technical guys that you consult with or it's not really necessary? Um, you know, I, I, hiring someone like that or having somebody like that on board, I, I probably would be helpful. You know, for now, it's basically just me. Like I've had people like, you know, ask me if, they, if I could be, they could be my assistant or, you know, people send me their, you know, stuff like that saying they want to work for me. And I, I you know, for now, I, I'm not, it's not something I'm doing, but yeah, I mean, like as the space continues to evolve, I, I would definitely uh, having someone who understands that a little bit, a little bit better would, is, is not a bad idea. I, I had read earlier this year when NFTs were first getting really, really hot with uh, top shots and so forth. Yeah, I, I had read that blockchain engineers, their going rate was like 600,000 to a million annual, the ones that could really do what they said they could do. Uh, yeah. 
has that maintained? Is it still a very, very highly paid sector? Yeah, I mean, I would say to you that given how fast everything has moved, like, uh, and given the amount of money that's transacting at the highest levels, if you're qualified and a top person in the field, there's going to be people that will pay you basically almost whatever you want. Now, I don't know if things are, you know, things have cooled off a little bit in the NFT space lately. Um, you know, we really peaked late August, early September, and we've been slowly drifting lower. And it was quite a bit of froth in the market at the time. Um, so yeah, I would imagine that if you're one of the top guys in the space, you're going to be able to be able to pretty much demand whatever you want because there aren't a lot of people that can actually do it, do what they say they can do. In 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 every arena of life, right? Exactly. A good, of, a good piece of business advice I got one time was develop a Rolodex of people, all of whom can do what they say they can do. And you're successful. <laughs> nice, nice. I think it's great advice and it's, uh, it's harder than it would seem. If you find those people, you should be willing to pay for them. That's a corollary. For sure. Um, okay, so August to September was the peak. And then it's come off a little bit since then. There's a correlation with the crypto price, which is off a bit. Um, I also find that with NFTs, there's a dynamic of demand is increasing, but supply is also increasing. Um, That's part of the reason why I guess you and other serious collectors have gravitated towards some collections with provenance. Um, What do you think about the ongoing supply? And here's another question. Has it ever um, occurred to you to mint your own collection? Or I don't know if you, I I think you've done some limited level of minting, but not like a a full collection. What what do you think of people that are getting into minting NFTs? Uh, yeah, and, and, and I, I hate to have this long-winded question, but I found it interesting. I had a, a, an interview with Peter Jennings last week, and he's he said that he's known a lot of people that have tried to mint their own NFT projects, and pretty much all of them have failed. Um, anyway, run with that one. Well, I, I think that like when you look at the traditional art and collectibles world, you know, like there's the, the, the limiting factor is like in part if there's kind of like gatekeepers and galleries that kind of limit the supply like if you can't convince the gallery owner to have your artwork they're not going to show your artwork and so you have this limit on supply by all these different levels of gatekeepers uh, and some people criticize that they're, they're like oh if you didn't go to a certain school or if you didn't do you know you didn't show at a certain show like you can't get your art displayed well there's got to be some limiting factor so that's how the traditional art world does it. And I would say to you that in the NFT space, one of the things that people like is there are no gatekeepers. Anybody can produce it. So because anyone can produce it, then there's no limiting factor on supply. So what becomes a limiting factor? Well, anyone can produce it. The market's going to decide and the market is going to look at the merit of it. And then things that are good do well and things that don't, things that aren't good are not going to do well. So it's just a different model. I, I, when people talk about unlimited supply in NFTs, it's kind of like the same arguments that I heard in 2015 
and 2016 on Bitcoin. They're like, oh, well, anyone can create a digital currency. Well, yeah, anyone can create a digital currency. The hard part, the hard part isn't creating a digital currency. The hard part is getting anyone to care about it or use it. So it's the same principle in NFTs. Anyone can create an NFT. There's no limit to how many can be created and there's no limit to who creates them. The limiting factor is how do you get someone to care? How do you get someone interested? If, if your product sucks, no one's going to care. And I think that, you know, there probably is a ton of product out there that could do better if it got some exposure, but you know, that's part of the game. Like there's no limiting factor on, on what can be created. So you have to come up with something new, something interesting, something different, something historic. Why is something like Autoglyphs worth a million dollars? Well, they're worth a million dollars because they were the first on-chain, you know, fully on-chain art. Uh, that's a big distinction. I think anytime you have something that has some historical context, that's a very, very good reason to own, own an asset like that. So, you know, I'm very, very particular in what I own and what I buy. I, I think that if you're, if you're looking at crap NFTs on OpenSea and you're buying it because it's 0.01 ETH and you think, well, it's only 0.01 ETH, you're, you know, you're basically throwing your money out the window. I'm not saying you can't, that, that there aren't some of those things that are gonna do well, but if you can't come up with a really compelling reason to buy something, don't buy it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... <clears throat> And what do you think about NFTs that are based around community? I guess a lot of selling points for certain ones. Having observed the Bored Ape success, a lot of people are trying to <laughs> piggyback that, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I really, I have to say that, you know, I don't, I don't miss a lot of, I don't miss most of the big things that happened in NFTs. And I definitely underestimated um, Board apes. Um, I didn't really grasp what was happening at the time, and that it like just always was like more expensive than I thought it was worth. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the great thing about board apes is it brought a lot of people into the space. It showed them that community matters because absolutely community matters, and you know, you were able to. Um, have people have this great success in the space and nothing gets people more interested, you know, than a big success. And a lot of people had their first big success with board apes. And I'm, I'm thrilled that the board apes exist. I hope everybody in the space makes a ton of money on it. And it's just, it's good for the space. You know, a lot of, a lot of people in the board ape community seem to think that there's like some kind of competition, like, uh, and I guess if they want it to be a competition, you can have a competition, but like, you know, for me, I want the whole space to do well. And I want people to make money in the space because, you know, if someone owns 10 board apes and they sell one or two, most of that money is going to get recirculated back and they're going to go into other high quality projects. And, you know, I, I want that to happen. That's, that's a good thing. I, I remember apes were sort of surfacing in in uh, early summer of this year. That's when they start started their their ascendancy, or did they did they predate? A little them? earlier than that. A little earlier than that. Uh, I want to I want to say April or May is where they, when they were actually launched. But I I, I don't one hundred percent know. I, I just remember it happened in the middle of the night, and I remember waking up the next day and everyone talking about it. And they were like, you know, you could have bought a great one for like one ETH, and the floor was like a quarter of an ETH. And I was just like, 
oh, I missed it. <laughs> yeah. And then it just kept, you know, up, up, up. You know, now it's actually threatening the crypto punk floor. And I, I, I think that like, if you look at markets, you know, there's always been like a lot of talk about, you know, Ethereum market cap flipping Bitcoin. And when it gets close, it always then backs off. And, you know, I, I think what will end up happening, I, I will not be surprised if at this point, if Board API Club does get their floor above CryptoPunks, but I would be very suspect of that lasting. But who knows? I've had it wrong so far on Board Apes. I'm willing to say I've had it wrong on Board Apes, so don't listen to me on Board Apes. <laughs> Got it. Um, well, I don't know how much time you have, but if you do have time, I wanted to hit a couple of more major topics. Um, okay. I got another. I, I got another. Like I got another 20, 25, 30 minutes, Brendan. Okay, if you, if you want. Okay, twenty-five minutes. Um, okay, DeFi and implications. Um, <clears throat> this is an area where I'm quite weak. So maybe you could start start from the foundations. Okay. I mean, for me, as someone who has a traditional finance background, you know, watching what's happening in the DeFi space to me is just super fascinating. Um, I would say to you that DeFi is effectively a nascent financial system that's springing up in a decentralized way and bringing a lot of the tools or trying to recreate a lot of the tools that we use in traditional finance in a decentralized way. And some of the stuff I'm looking at, some of the stuff I see, I just think is amazing. But like, even even on something that that most people who are involved in crypto would probably understand, like even something like Uniswap, like I don't I don't really think people understand how significant something like Uniswap is in the terms in terms of a decentralized exchange or DEX. You know, the asset that you hold is in your wallet until the moment that it. That if you want to, if you hold Ethereum and you want to buy a stablecoin USDC, um, unlike a centralized exchange like Coinbase, where you have to actually send the asset in and then put it on an exchange, and then Coinbase has the asset. In a decentralized exchange, you are actually holding that asset up until the second that the exchange happens. And that's in the same block at the same moment the exchange happens. So no counterparty risk, no centralization risk. Um, it's a pretty big deal. And I don't, I don't think people really grasp the significance of that um, because we're so used to centralization and we're so used to a centralized exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or um, uh, Coinbase. Uh, but, but, but something like that is, is it's, it's pretty amazing the way um, liquidity pools match, effectively match up buyers and sellers, liquidity pools in general, I think are just an amazing con concept. I, I, um, I used to work on a trading desk and there was a Forex desk, foreign exchange desk um, right next to us. And, you know, people were trading large blocks and you, you know, 10, 50, hundred million type blocks of foreign exchange. And, you know, it involved very, very tight bid offer spreads and a lot of interaction and a lot of risk where, effectively a liquidity pool um, creates that same function. And as you uh, want to transact in larger sizes, you know, it impacts the pool and you pay a slightly higher um, slippage uh, to, to transact. And as these pools get larger and larger, the ability to transact in larger and larger size um, goes up. So effectively, 
these um, pools are effectively currency pairs, very similar to how the Forex market trades. And as more assets come into the space, the depth of these markets increase. I, I just, I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, something like Maker, where they have a stable coin uh, called Dai, which is um, backed by um, over collateralized cryptocurrency as assets like Ethereum. Um, they take a bunch of different assets. Um, there is some centralization risk there because they do also allow USDC, which is a stable coin to be used as collateral, but it's, it's not, um, I, I don't really view USDC as being that much of a risk and it helps to mitigate some of the volatility in the die price. But like, I don't know, I, I just, I feel like in the future, I, I really truly believe that every stock, every bond, potentially every piece of real estate will trade on a blockchain. I don't know why it wouldn't. Um, and something like Uniswap is potentially going to be the exchange that could handle a global market, not just a local market or a country's market, but much, much bigger. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think there's going to be competition in the space and there's room for multiple competitors, of course, but you know, I, I really like what I'm seeing there. Um, yeah, I mean, basically like uh, Compound and other uh, platforms like that enable you to loan, lend and borrow crypto assets, which is, you know, just amazing. So people that are looking to loan stable coins can earn a rate of return um, on them. Plus you earn governance tokens and, you know, like you can almost do like a governance token mining strategy where you're lending stable coins or whatever crypto assets you want. And then, you know, not only do you earn a rate of return, but you also earn these governance tokens, which gives you a play on the platform down the line. So if the platform itself is successful and you hold those governance tokens, you know, you, you get the benefit of it. On the lending and borrowing side, um, I've, I've heard many people say that they, they often, uh, will borrow against their their crypto assets. What is it in the crypto space that um, where people are so loath to get rid of their crypto? Like I've always just wondered why they didn't just, instead of paying a high interest rate, just liquidate some crypto and spend that money. Um, well, it's not a high interest rate for starters. So that would be the first reason. Isn't it around 10 to 15%? Oh no! I mean, I can I can borrow. A, you can borrow. A, let's put it this way: you can get paid to borrow Ethereum right now. If you pledge stable coins and then borrow ETH against your stable coins, you you could you can actually get basically a zero percent interest rate. I mean, if you if you want to borrow stable coins, like so, if, if if it really depends on what you're looking to do. So if you own Bitcoin or Ethereum and you want to borrow a stable coin against it, well, yes, you're going to pay a higher interest rate, but also recognize that most people that are doing this in any kind of size typically are going to own their crypto at pretty low levels. So liquidating your crypto will trigger a tax taxable event. And, you know, the tax ban's not very kind on your, you know, short-term capital gains. Got it. But I, I prefer to like, you know, loan, I prefer to like hold stable coins, borrow Ethereum against it when I want to buy something. And then, 
you know, especially like if you want to like bid on a bunch of NFTs, like I can borrow Ethereum at almost no cost and then bid on a bunch of items. And if I don't buy any of them, I just return the ETH. And it's not, not expensive. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really, I don't put my Bitcoin. I mean, you can, Bitcoin, you can, you can wrap it and you can get it on the Ethereum chain and then you can get it involved in DeFi. I just choose not to do that. And there's not much of a market for uh, borrowing money or Ethereum against your punk or something, right? Not currently, but there is a lot of uh, platforms that are talking about it. Um, as a big punk collector and holder, I do get asked to do calls with different people that are working on different solutions. And I think that that the merging of NFTs and DeFi, it's, it's, there's a lot of people working on it. Um, there are a couple of platforms already that that kind of create that type of functionality where you can uh, put a punk into a pool and get a punk token. And that token can be put into a Uniswap pool. So it can be basically fractionalized. And I, I think that um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that uh, moving forward. You know, especially we, we talked a little bit before about metaverse and metaverse assets. I mean, I think a lot of these assets that are that exist right now have the potential to be extremely valuable, and I think there will be a just like there's a market for you know grandmaster painting or master paintings that you can borrow against them. You know, it's going to be the same type of thing, except you don't have to you can you can secure them on on a on a blockchain. It's interesting that you brought up the grandmaster paintings because I had a question to ask you. Um, okay. I've heard that there are some businesses that are sort of putting old works on the blockchain. Perhaps these already exist and are common or whatever. Um, but the question I have about something like that, let's just say where they're, where they're taking a piece and then putting it on the blockchain where it then becomes tradable. Um, presumably the way that should work is that the person secures the right to the actual physical art and then they sort of make a digital representation of that that can then be traded. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, in, in general, I, I don't think, you have to be really careful. If you're taking a non-digitally native asset, like an, a Banksy painting or a, you know old master painting or whatever, you, know, you have to make sure that that asset is secured in a location and because uh, because you're not going to get you're you're not it's if it's not properly secured, you really don't know what you're filing. You can create a token against a piece of artwork, but if you can't ultimately exchange those tokens for that artwork at some point, then then what do you really have? So I'm not real big on I'm not real big on real world collectibles like art or baseball cards or coins or any of those things being securitized on blockchain. I'm, I'm not, and, and because you're introducing a massive centralization issue because someone's got to hold that. There's got to be a trusted repository to hold that asset and says, yes, we have this asset. And if you bring us all the tokens, you can get that asset out. That's the key part of it. And that's where I'm, I, I don't know if I would be willing to, to get involved with something like that. What you're saying is perfectly logical. Um, the criticism would also hold for, for real estate, for instance, which perhaps is why you qualified 
uh, real estate when you talked about DeFi. Um, you'd have to verify that everything is correct at time zero. And then yes. after it could trade on the blockchain, but you would you would need to be 100% sure that you were right at time zero. And then from, the, from that point forward, you could do the accounting on the, on the blockchain. Yeah, and I mean, real estate actually, you know, because a house or a building doesn't really move, um, you know, it would be a little bit easier because you, you, you know where it's located, but like, you know, a coin that's, you know, half an inch, like, I mean, that could be anywhere. Like that, that's, that's a much tougher trade. And, and a house really can't be counterfeited where, you know, other things a little bit easier. You, although you have to worry about the condition of a house, but I mean, I would, I, I do genuinely believe that housing, house title, will trade on a blockchain because, I mean, title insurance is the biggest scam out there. So once you securitize it, once you have a clean, once you have a clean record, you could then put that on a blockchain, and now it's secured. You could, you wouldn't have to keep doing title insurance. And I have heard people talking about working on that, on that as a solution. Um, I have two more questions for you and then okay. I'll let you go. And one side question, um, in poker, it's not, it's always interesting to everyone sort of likes to look at car wrecks, right? Like part of the fascination with rail heaven back in the, back in the day, watching people play 500,000, no limit was that the the pain was real, right? You'd have the, you'd have these things. And I, I could imagine in um, the crypto space, there must be just some epic sort of inflations and, and blowups. Um, and I know you said you root for everyone's success. Um, but in a way, like your portfolio is visible to everyone. Right. Yes. Or, or many people, they're making their portfolio perfectly visible. So their successes and failures are there for all to see. Right. It's, yes. pretty, it's a pretty interesting part of the of the space. Um, and. Uh, well, it's kind of interesting that the punk is an identity, but it's also such a large asset. It's probably like the last people probably sell their house before their punk once once it's become so entrenched in their identity. Yeah, well, they say having one punk is the same as having no punks because you can't sell your last one, you know. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, okay, art blocks and generative art. Can you yes. can you walk me through the basics of this? So, you know, generative art has existed since the 60s, uh, since the dawn of the computer age, there's been people trying to use, uh, you know, use a computer to, to do, to make art. Some of the early uh, generative artists were someone like uh, Manfred Moore or Herbert Frank, Vera Molinar. Uh, these are people that were doing stuff at the very dawn of the, um, dawn of the computer age. And uh, tr what they would traditionally do is they would create an algorithm or a program and they'd iterate on it, you know, a thousand times or however many times they would iterate on it. And um, they would then curate the collection. They'd pick the 10 best iterations and they would say, oh, this is my collection. 
and those are these are the ten pieces that are going to be uh, offered for sale, and they would sell those ten pieces, and that would be the end of it. Um, what Art Blocks really did was uh, really change this whole model in terms of you you were no longer uh, able to curate the collection. So um, a very well known and well regarded artist is someone named Tyler Hobbs who did Fidenza. So he coined the phrase long form generative art. So what Artblocks does is an artist uploads the algorithm, a specific amount of mints is determined, typically for Artblock curated, it's 500 to 1000 mints. And then people show up at their ETH and the piece is minted on demand. And interestingly, the the transactional hash of the actual transaction of purchase is the random variable that is then used to create the piece of art. Um, and the art blocks platform itself becomes the limiting factor on it. So where if you just create an algorithm, you could iterate infinitely on it by uploading it to art blocks and specifying the date, time and quantity, you then have a limiting factor on it. And that's really the big difference with art blocks is that you're able to set this algorithm and set a specific amount of mints. And then once those mints are done, no more can be created. Now you could take that algorithm and you could generate a, an infinite number of outputs, but they won't be Fidenza or they won't be Squiggles or they won't be whatever the name of the art project is. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Uh, I, I mean, I've been fascinated from it with it since, since since I started getting involved with it at the beginning. So, I mean, I think Artblocks is one of the more interesting platforms out there, definitely the leader in the generative art space, although more recently there are some competitors. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm very into Artblocks. So the minted on demand part that helps to solve the transaction costs. Presumably these are on the Ethereum blockchain and you mentioned yes. that these big collections don't care about the gas fees so much, but it does it does add up if you're doing a thousand. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, there, and there were gas wars for a while taking place where people, you know, you, you were minting um, a piece of art that cost 0.15 ETH and you were spending one ETH in gas because everyone wanted the piece. So they've switched to a Dutch auction model more recently. Um, with a declining price versus having these gas wars. But yeah, I mean, it was a problem for sure. But I guess the thing is like, if there's a thousand mints and there's 10,000 people that want it, you have to use, you, you have to rational, you have to ration it somehow. And although gas wars enrich the miners at the expense of artists and the platform, it is one way to do, to do that, to, um, whoever basically pays the most in gas gets the mint. It just wasn't ideal. Switching to a Dutch auction, a lot of people complained about it, but at least in a Dutch auction format, the artist and the platform are the ones benefiting versus the miners. Yeah, that makes sense. I saw the Bloomberg article yesterday about the, someone accidentally had a fat finger uh, trade and I guess, to get it done very quickly, the gas fee was ended up being a huge multiple of the purchase. Did you happen to see that? Someone, I think it was. I didn't see it. I think it was a punk. Someone accidentally sold it for three thousand dollars or something. Oof, imagine. Yeah, and the person who got it had an algorithm set up to take advantage of just 
such an event and paid a large bit of gas. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Well, right. If the punk is worth half a million bucks, you 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 couldn't possibly pay enough gas to get it. You know what I'm saying? Um. So have you have you participated in creating your own digital art? I have not gotten involved with that yet. Uh, I'm really more a collector, um, investor. Uh, I haven't really gotten, I haven't decided to, to do something like that. Although I have been approached by people. Um, I'm thinking about um, maybe trying to design an on cyber gallery. And we talked about that before something that maybe would play more into the metaverse aspect of things like more 3D objects versus most of the on cyber galleries currently are, well, they're designed for, for, for art that would be on a wall typically. So they create like a gallery space. You know, some of them are futuristic and different and out there, but they're mostly for 2D. But, they, but these galleries do have the ability to display objects in 3D. And I've put some me bits in, in, in galleries and I look pretty cool. And so, but I, I think that none of the, none of these on cyber galleries have been designed yet for um, 3D or, you know, more complex, something more than a, than a piece of art that would hang on a wall. So a gallery that was designed specifically to house statues or cubes or just things that are more 3D, I think would really be potentially a benefit. So that might be something I, I, I work on to, to try to do something like that gallery by von Mises or something like that. I like it. Um, so last question. Okay. Um, my son bear, he's natively interested in the metaverse. Ask me questions about the metaverse. I cannot answer. Um, how do you, how, how would you engage a child with this burgeoning digital landscape gaming is a natural for them because kids they enjoy games obviously roadblocks um is sort of meta 1.0 um what do you see like the teenager a decade from now what what do you suppose they will be doing yeah i mean like i think about being a teenager and just being obsessed with video games. And so I, I, yeah, I would imagine gaming is going to be everyone's first entree into uh, our first exposure to, um, you know, a metaverse type experience. And I think that'll become very natural because like, you know, if you play like a call of duty game, you're effectively in a little mini metaverse. You're in a, you're on a board um, or a scene effectively. And there's avatars, running around with guns and you're shooting each other. So I think that's that's a very easy one to, to for people to understand. I, I think I think that the real thing is the real point of differentiation between you know uh, a call of duty and a metaverse is just that the assets in a metaverse are going to be digitally native and you're going to be able to own those assets. And I think that's really the big thing that separates it. Now how do you get a child to understand that? I don't I don't know. I don't know if a child is going to care whether where the assets come from or where why this is different. Um, it's a good question. I have a, I have a daughter, so I don't, I, you know, I need to really think about that. She's too young right now to really, you know, understand any of these concepts, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to be something I'm going to be tackling. I like it. Well, I appreciate this so much. It was hugely informative. I think the audience will be into it as well. Thank you. Okay.